We talk about women in mythology and folklore all around the world. We're your hosts. I'm Zoe. And I'm Lizzie. So today is our second themed episode. Yeah. So today, in honor of Halloween having just passed, and today being All Souls Day, we are going to celebrate some creatures that may or may not have souls. So we're talking about (laughs) vampiric women. So throughout history, particularly in Europe, the stories of vampiric women have been used to demonize and vilify women. And that is demonstrated by the real-life story of our first lady, Batory Erzabet, or more commonly known as Countess Elizabeth Batory. So Countess Batory Erzabet is known for having tortured and murdered many young women and girls under her care, and so the legend is she bathed in their blood in order to maintain her beauty and youth. So the story goes, one day, a servant was brushing her hair, and it got caught in a snag. And because that hurt her, she was filled with rage, and Countess Batory leapt up and slapped her so hard it drew blood, spilling on her hand. Interesting. And then later she realized that the skin on her hand looked much more youthful than it had in years, presumably because of the blood, the secret to her youth. Mm-hmm. So she began to capture and kill more young women, draining them of their blood and bathing in it. And supposedly 650 girls were killed in this way. And some stories say that she would sink her teeth in them in order to draw blood. So very vampiric. Ooh. And basically her status was untouchable because she was a countess until she started to capture and murder the daughters of nobility. And that became her downfall. Yeah, you don't want to do that. Yeah. So later investigations uncovered hundreds of dead and dying girls within her castle and the eventual imprisonment inside her castle until her death. This is a great story, right? Yeah. (laughs) Except for the fact that all that is like BS. Oh, okay. Okay. So this legend first appeared in 1729 with the Jesuit historian Laszlo Turozzi, his Chajica Historia. Um, so that was where the specific legend of her bathing in blood and, like, slapping the servant and stuff came from. And basically, it was spread by other fantastical accounts of her story, which named Vanity as the chief motive from her crimes. And it also coincided with vampire scares occurring across Europe at the time of these writings. Makes sense. Um, Quite but prevalent, the direct, I feel like. <laughs> oh, yeah. But the direct connection was not made until the 20th century when she became a popular figure in vampire media. So, what is the truth about... Countess Batory Erzsébet. So she grew up in Hungary in Nyer Bator, um, and she possibly learned cruelty from her family. There's legends that she witnessed torture and beatings and was taught by her family members who practiced Satanism and witchcraft. Oh, but wow. there's literally, there's no evidence for any of these claims. Um, eventually she married a guy named Ferenc Nadozsi, who was the son of the Baron, and through marriage gained significant wealth and power through the joining of their land and titles. 
And that only increased after his death in 1604, when she, like, gained all of his land. But also, Nadozhdi entrusted his heirs and his widow to the care of a man named Georg Turzo. And he eventually was the one who launched the investigation into her crimes. So basically, the testimonies are that Bathory abused girls ages 10 to 14, many daughters of lesser gentry sent to an all-girls etiquette school on her estate, and some are said to have been abducted. Mm -hmm. And the allegations include many different horrific forms of torture, which we don't go into because this isn't that kind of podcast, (laughs) but it's really awful. Um, Witnesses named relatives, seeing signs of abuse on dead bodies, and some claim to have witnessed torture themselves. Seems like a grim Um, landscape over here. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And eventually she was arrested in 1610 alongside four servants who said to be her accomplices. And due to the scandal that would result in their trial and execution, she was instead kept under house arrest until her death. Hmm. And a quote from Wikipedia about the trial. Most of the witnesses testified that they heard the accusations from others but didn't see it themselves. The servants confessed under torture, which is not credible in contemporary proceedings. True. They were the Mm -hmm. king's witnesses, but they were executed quickly. The accusations of murder were based on rumors. There was no document to prove that anyone in the area complained about the countess. In this time period, if someone was harmed or someone even stole a chicken, a letter of complaint was written. Hmm. So I do think it's important to note that since she was in a great position of power and likely would have received such notes of complaint, um, that might not be the best form of evidence, but I think all the other evidence still stands. Yeah. So a lot of people believe that Bachory was a victim of conspiracy. Ah, like a purposeful thing? Yeah, like a defamation plot to unseat her. Um, Well, it certainly worked. mm -hmm, Yeah. So likely due to her extensive wealth and ownership as a woman and a widow, and also possibly she was a victim of a Catholic or Habsburg plot. So one of her greatest enemies actually was a Lutheran priest um, named Janos Ponikainus. But um, he was Lutheran, but she was Calvinist, so there was still like conflict there. Okay. And he accused her of witchcraft and cannibalism. And he wrote to Georg that she could turn into a black cat and stalk him at night. Hmm. And then in the political side, her cousin was the former prince of Transylvania, which was currently an independent state supporting greater Hungarian independence from the Habsburgs. Near the time of Bathory's trials, he was held captive by the Habsburg princes. However, Elizabeth's land and wealth was enough to exercise significant political influence in Hungary and could also aid her cousin to assume the hungarian throne okay so basically she had like the power and location also to if she wanted to help her cousin who was like advocating for more hungarian independence like actually achieve more hungarian independence from the Habsburgs, and they didn't want that and a historian named irma sadetsky kardosh uh believes that uh the physical evidence was exaggerated by georg turzo the guy who was entrusted with the care of Bachelor mm-hmm. in her lands, because she believes that he mis- misrepresented dead and wooden patients as her victims. And also disgracing her would benefit his political ambitions and stations. And actually, before his involvement in her trial, he had been involved in a failed attempt on her cousin's life. Uh. Yeah. So basically, what is the truth? Kind of hard to say. I do believe... Kind of seems like there's a little, like, not very much evidence to mm-hmm. the popular conception. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So first of all, she definitely did not drain women of their blood and bathe in it. We know that for sure. Even in the witness testimonies, there's no documentation of that. And that didn't appear until almost like over 100 years later in that Chajika Historia. Um, I do think that it's like a bit of a lot to say that no crimes were committed by Erzabet ever. Um, she was in such a position of power as a countess over the gentry in her land. And like, I think that, you know, it's possible that she there she did abuse some of her servants. However, to the extent that she was accused of is, I think, pretty unlikely. Mm-hmm. Then some more information. Um some modern historians, Radu Florescu and Raymond T. McNally, believe that bloodbath stories came from prejudice surrounding women and gender roles. And honestly, it's not even, like, about... They, uh, like, don't even, like, say that she didn't commit the crimes. They just believe that people couldn't believe that women could kill for their own sake. That it had to have been motivated by vanity or something like that. Yeah. So basically, like, the Gillian Flynn, like, theory that, like, f- you know, it's feminist to, like, create these evil female characters who are evil just because which i think is cool interesting but, i mean it's pretty fun to create evil yeah. female characters but yeah but again like there's so much surrounding her politically religiously socially that like we don't know what's true and what's not i mean probably but, the modern sort of thought about her is a quite exaggerated yeah but like it's so prominent still the idea that she like bathed in servant's blood like when i was searching information about her there were so many things they were like read this crazy story about this hungarian countess who was literally draining blood from her servant's bodies and it's it's just not true but it's still like a prominent feature in vampire legends today and she was actually featured as the main antagonist in dracula the undead which is a sequel to the original novel written by stoker's great grand nephew dacre stoker interesting so yeah um, this is a way, definitely a good way in which, like, the vampire myth has, like, been used to defame a powerful woman who may have done some bad things, but, like, definitely everything has been, at least some to some extent, blown out of proportion. Seems like it. There's also movies about her, one of which I've yeah. seen. Mm-hmm. I yeah, mean, like, she's huge. Like, there are video game characters named after her, and, like, I think there's, like, some, like, role-playing monsters named after her and stuff. <laughs> like, it's crazy. She's, like, such a big, um pop culture influence from a story that's like it's like not even her it's like this huge you know thing around her nothing to do with her Mm -hmm. really yeah and so that's why we decided to include her even though like obviously we stick generally stick to folklore and mythology because it's gone so much beyond like her actual life it's become this huge mythos that's like not even based in reality Mm -hmm. it's basically sort of like folklore at this point yeah so another European vampire figure is the Striga from Albania. She was a female vampire who usually was an ugly old hag mm. who lived in hidden places in the forest and had supernatural powers. Cool. So the Striga loved to eat human beings, especially young boys and anyone they happened to dislike, which I thought was fun. Wow. <laughs> Just anyone they don't like, they will eat. Yeah. Also, like, very much, like, playing on, like, primal fears of, like, they're going to steal your children and eat them. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like a lot of the women I'm going to talk about today prey on the young. Uh-huh. But uh, we'll get into that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the Strigas of a village will often plot to eat one another's sons. Oh. Yep. And Interesting. Uh, I guess they weren't allies to each other. No. And... 
When they fall asleep at night, their souls wander off, leaving their lifeless bodies in bed. Uh-huh. Which is why one way to defeat a Striga is to, mm-hmm. when the soul has left the body, basically turn the body around in bed so that the feet are where the head should be. Oh. And then the soul can't get into the body again because it's, like, confused. Wow, that's really interesting. I thought you were going to say, like, burn the body, but it's just turn the body <laughs> well, around. May- maybe that, too. <laughs> but uh, yeah. it's a much simpler way. Mm-hmm. And if a woman's hair turns white when she's 20, she's probably a Striga. Ooh. So, yeah. Yeah. And they also had pale blue eyes and a stare that made people uncomfortable. Interesting. People were supposed to avoid looking at them directly in the eyes because they have the evil eye. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. That's really a big thing. Mm Mm-hmm. It is, yeah. And, um... So to ward off a striga, people could take a pinch of salt in their fingers and touch their closed eyes, mouth, heart, and the opposite side of the heart, and the pit of the stomach, and then throw the salt directly into the flames and say a chant, which is in Albanian, which I could not find the translation for. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was one way. And also, by day, the striga takes the form of a woman. But at night, she changes into a flying insect, a bee, fly, or a moth. Really? That's very interesting. I will talk more about that soon. Okay. And she sucks people's blood out through her insect form. Oh, my gosh. So it's like... Like a mosquito. Yeah. (laughs) Or like, um, you know, like the proboscis of like a butterfly, you know, when they suck pollen. Yeah. So it's blood. Ugh. Exactly. Ugh. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's so fun. And uh, it is, it's pretty fun. And sometimes you'll just like see a moth and be like, is it going to suck my blood? Mm-hmm. But anyway, so when a striga is caught, she is made to vomit forth the blood of her victims, and the vomited blood is kept as a talisman or charm to ward off any other witches or strigas. Lovely. Mm hmm. So in Catholic legend, it's said that the striga can be destroyed using holy water or a cross. Mm-hmm. And in Islamic myth, it's said that the striga can be sent away or killed by reciting verses from the Quran and spitting water on the striga. That's super interesting because, like, you hear about Catholic, you know, like, stuff to ward off vampires all the time because it's a huge part of the mythos. Thanks, Bram Stoker. Yeah. Um, but... <laughs> No, they. I haven't heard anything about like Islamic methods to ward off vampires before. Yeah, it totally makes sense that that would be present in Albania because yeah. they were definitely touched and impacted by the Ottoman Empire, mm-hmm. which is pretty interesting. So yeah, that's yeah, that's super cool. Mm-hmm. And another way to kill a striga was with an iron, but only while the striga is eating. Oh, so like when they're drinking blood. It just says eating. I assumed it meant like food, but oh, hmm. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. So the Albanian word striga is derived via Slavic from the Latin striga, which means witch. Fun. And it's it's also related to the Italian strega, the Slovenian striga, Romanian strigoia, and Greek strigla. Mm. And the word striga, by the way, is also related to our next vampiric women, the estries. Ooh. So the estries were female vampires of Jewish folklore who liked to suck the blood of infants. Mm. Their name came from the French stri, which was a kind of owl, like a night owl, 
which also comes from the Latin striga. So connection. All connected. Yeah, it's all connected. So in the 12th to 13th century, there was a book called the Sefer Chassidim, which described the customs of Jewish communities in Germany. Mm-hmm. So it said that the estuaries were created at sunset before the first Sabbath. And because of that, they're able to change form. Interesting. Yeah. And the estuaries could be restrained by imposing an oath upon them. Also, if their hair could be constrained, they would lose their ability to attack. Interesting. And very. Also, salt and bread could be used to counter the effect of an injury from the estuary. Mm-hmm. So estuaries could be injured and they prefer the night, although it's not clear whether they're cursed to the night like other vampires or not. Mm-hmm. But when you bury an estuary, you have to fill its mouth with dirt. Otherwise, she would still be able to devour children. Wow. Yep. So you have you could bury it once it's dead. But even if it's dead, you have to fill the mouth with dirt. Otherwise, she will come back. Interesting. Yeah. And so though estuaries were in Jewish lore, estuaries themselves were not Jewish. Okay. And also, estuaries were undeterred by religious iconography, which is interesting because I feel like with most vampires, it's the opposite. Yeah, definitely. So this sets estuaries apart from a lot of other vampires. Mm-hmm. Um, estuaries were able to walk into holy places, sometimes wow. to seek prayer for healing from religious people. But blessing an estuary was an evil act in ancient cultures. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's like they could fool you, kind of. Okay, so like... They're not actually seeking forgiveness. They're just trying to trick people. I suppose. And yeah, so during the Middle Ages, estuaries were given more of a Christian interpretation. So Mm -hmm. later on, they were also vulnerable to things like silver bullets, wooden stakes, and holy water. Classic. Very. And uh, the fear of vampire-like creatures was intense in certain Jewish communities in medieval times. And this belief tended to surface in settings where it was also prevalent among their non-Jewish neighbors. So... Mm -hmm. Also, the fact that they have non-Hebrew names suggests foreign origins as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I do know that vampire myths, a lot of them do have pretty anti-Semitic origins. Yeah, I mean, one of the women I was talking about, I think it was the Striga, said like, oh, she has like a crooked nose. And I was like, okay, Mm. leave that part out. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And like, so it's interesting that it's very prominent in Jewish folklore as well. And then also um, interesting that it's, like, probably foreign influence. I will say, I didn't read this anywhere. I'm sort of just, like, assuming. It seems more, like, in European Jewish communities rather than globally Jewish communities. That totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. Especially because it's found in the Sefer Chassidim, which was in Germany. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where a lot of the sources from her come from. So Mm -hmm. kind of seems more, like, European. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, yeah. and be- belief in estuaries gradually disappeared from Jewish lore and do not appear in contemporary Jewish communities. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I mean, which makes which makes sense mm-hmm. for historical reasons, but also yeah, you know, yeah. but also because they were sort of overtaken by the Christian lore as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely. So yeah, thoughts on the Striga and estuaries. Yeah, so they're very interesting. So did you say how the estuaries appeared? Like, were they also old women or were they younger? Uh, I want to say they were younger, but I don't think it said specifically. They definitely appear as a woman, but Mm -hmm. I want to say a young woman. Yeah. 
Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So I think it's, like, definitely interesting to see how, like, these very similar, um, like, names. So they're definitely, like, at least, like, oh gosh, I want to say feeding off each other. So, haha, <laughs> pun in it, not intended. Um, like, the legends are definitely influencing each other since the names are similar and probably inspired by the same source and seeing how they're interpreted yeah. in different ways. Um, definitely and just and how- while I was while I was doing research I came across this reddit thread about like different versions of the Striga in the Balkans I didn't really include it today but it was pretty interesting there's like yeah. a word in Polish as well mm-hmm. a bunch of other languages as well yeah and it's just how widespread vampire panic was in Europe like it's pretty crazy I know about it but every time I'm reminded it's just so crazy like Everyone was very afraid, and a lot of it did have to do with prejudice, and so that, and like, led to a lot of really horrific acts, and it's just really crazy to always hear about and be reminded. And it even spreads to, like, colonies in America, and, like, all these, Mm -hmm. like, you know, um, the panics in, like, Massachusetts and New England and stuff of, like, um thinking that they're vampires and, like, digging up corpses and just desecrating them and stuff. And it's just really wild how wide... And how long it lasted, too. Yeah, for sure. And even today, vampires are, like, huge in culture, although yeah. in a very different way. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah. Very prominent. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the things you said reminded me of uh, my next lady, which is the Babanshi, whose name means fairy woman. Um, and that is a female vampire in the folklore of the Scottish Highlands, who is similar to Ooh. both fairies and succubi, um, which are demons that, like, seduce people and have sex with them. Um, but female ones, specifically. Um, so they usually appear as beautiful women wearing long green dresses, which hide the hooves they have instead of feet. Fun! Yeah, and they may also take the form of a hooded crow slash raven, which is very interesting. Interesting how bats haven't appeared at all. Yeah. It but is. I love the crow thing. That's such a good point. Like, bats are so prominent, but they haven't appeared at all, and I d- actually don't think I have anything in my notes about bats. Me neither. Yeah, so where did it come from? No idea. Yeah, anyway. Um, I mean, like, the the stree being, like, a, a, owls are kind of similar, but, like, obviously not the same as bats, so... Yeah. yeah, and I mean, mm-hmm. they all, like, shapeshift, I feel like. Yeah. So, um... But into different things. Mm-hmm. So my gal, the Bavan, she drinks blood and vanishes with the rising sun. So she's not, like, um, allergic to it or anything, but she just disappears. She just uses the night as a cover. Or... Yeah. So she's often said to lure travelers into secluded areas where they would invite them in to dance, and then they would attack while off guard and puncture their nets with their super sharp talons sucking their blood you know what that kind of reminded me of what last to buy that's so true oh my gosh luring men in by yeah the tree. and that literally i'm pretty sure i thought of that when i was taking these notes and it did just totally slipped my mind but yeah absolutely episode five <laughs> yeah um they seem to prefer hunters drawn to bloody clothing and they only seem to attack men but it also might be that like mainly men are out in like the woods at night you know there. so there might be like um but it also that like the story female temptress, you know, we'll talk about it. classic. And some stories say they can shapeshift into wolves, which is present in Bram Stoker's Dracula. And um, if they drink a man's blood, they can mimic his appearance. Well, that's fun. Yeah. So there are a few fun stories about them. Um, the first one involves four men out hunting. They take shelter in a lonely hut. One of them begins to sing, and the other three begin to dance. 
and they began to desire women to dance with them. And then suddenly four women enter the hut. So three of them dance with the woman, and the fourth continues to make music. And then he starts to see blood drops fall from his companions, and he freaks out and runs out of the cabin to hide with the horses. And he's chased by the fourth woman, but she's unable to catch him before sunrise, and then she disappears. And that's possibly due to two reasons. Because of iron in the horseshoes, which is a fairy weakness. Fairies don't like iron. And also because, for some reason, Bhava and she are terrified of horses. Interesting. Yeah. Why is that? It doesn't say. They just are. Okay. I couldn't find any reason. They were just like, yeah, they're afraid of horses. Well, that's perfectly logical. Some people are afraid of horses. It was just probably like... um, a reassuring thing like if you're riding on horse i mean it's safer to be riding on horseback in general in the woods i'd say than to be like yeah walking be like yeah, i'm on a horse foot. so it's not gonna attack me yeah so then then there's another story where the guy had seen the woman had hooves instead of feet and then he ran and then he returned and found their throats cut open and chests laid open so you and they were very much. But dead. do they have like horse hooves or like a different kind of? <laughs> so my guess is goat hooves because of the demonic okay. implications of that. Kind of reminds me of uh, Asia Kamvisha from uh, Moroccan yeah. mythology. Yeah. So then there's another story where the hunters take refuge in a cave, and then all of them say they wish their sweethearts were with them now, except for one whose name is McPhee. And he has a black dog, and he says he prefers his wife to remain at home. And then after that, a group of young women enter the cave and kill everyone who wished for their sweethearts. But McPhee Ooh. is protected by his dog and survives. Okay. Um, <laughs> so they seem to appear after men wish for female companionship, which seems to conform to the Scottish ideal that if you make a wish without invoking God's protection, it will be granted in a terrible way. And so kind they're of like against adultery, maybe. Yeah. Uh, like indulging Cushing in sin, against. yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So they're fun, and they like definitely show how some things I saw when I did research is that the royal female vampires seem to highlight men's fears of women's sexuality. So in general, like women are seen as pure and good, or often submissive wives and mothers, or evil fallen woman, and they could only be one or the other. And so vampire yeah, like women like deviation from yeah morality exactly. It's, so, like, all connected. Everything bad is, like, over on this side, you know? hmm Yeah, like, if you didn't conform to those very limited standards, you were e- evil. Like yeah. You were an evil woman. And you were, like, a servant of the devil to tempt good, God-fearing men into, you know, turning towards sin and away from God, you know? Um, mm-hmm. this, so this idea reflects Christian sexist ideas about women based on the original sin of Eve. So, yeah. Um, hmm, yeah. Yeah. So, and so vampire women often fit into these categories of fallen women. They're highly sexualized. The example that I was reading about were the female vampires in Dracula. Um, and they're often dominating over men. Um, and so, like, example the episode in Dracula where Jonathan Harker meets the female vampires in Dracula's castle uh, reflects men's fears of being put into feminized roles during sex and being victims of vic- uh, female sexual predation, the way that women experience sexual predation by men. Oh. So that's fun. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we see some different things in my next woman, who is called the Sukuyon. And that is someone that is native to a lot of different places in the Caribbean, uh, where they're known from by a lot of different names. So, for example, the Sucuriang in Dominica, St. Lucian, Trinidad, Guadalupe, 
or the Luguru in Haiti, Louisiana, and Grenada, Olhig or Olhag in Guyana and Jamaica, or Hag in Bahamas, and Asima in Suriname. Hmm. So if you want etymology, I'm so sorry. I tried so hard to find stuff. I couldn't find anything. Um, except for Luguru is likely taken from the legend of the Ruguru, which is a Cajun French legend about a blood-sucking werewolf that transfers its curse to others by sucking their blood. And that's taken from the French Lugaru, which means werewolf. Mm-hmm. So these are shape-shifting creatures. They traditionally appear as a reclusive old lady by day. But at night, she strips off her skin and puts it in a mortar and then flies across the sky in her true form, which is a fireball searching for her victim. Well, she sounds great. Yeah, so she can enter the house that through. That is so fun. Yeah, she can enter the house through any size hole, cracks, crevices, or keyholes, and then she sucks blood from the arms, the legs, and the soft parts while they sleep, and leaves blue black marks. So if she sucks, so like a bruise. Yeah. So if she sucks too much blood, the victim will either, depending on the story, die and then also become a sukiyon, which is similar to other vampire myths. Yes. Or die outright, and then the sukiyon will take their skin. And apparently, um, legends say they practice black magic. So they trade blood for evil powers with Basile, who is a demon of the silk cotton tree, or the Seba tree. If you remember, again, from our La Ishtabai episode, which I thought that was really fun. (laughs) That is. Everything's connected. (laughs) Yeah. So to expose a sukuyon, you can sprinkle rice around the doorstep of your house. And they will be compelled to pick up and count each grain one by one, and they won't be able to finish before dawn, where they will have to fly off and return to their skin. Hmm. Um, which is that's actually, yeah, that's actually something I've seen a lot in vampire myths, is that they really like counting things. So, like, if you're being chased by a vampire, you should, like, drop a handful of rice or, like, a bunch of beads or something, and they'll, like, have to stop and count them, and then you can get away. That's interesting. Yeah, so to just destroy her, you can put coarse salt in the mortar containing her skin. And she will not be able to change back and will perish. Yeah, salt is a common theme. Mm-hmm. I've definitely noticed that. Yeah, salt is a big theme in, like, fighting against the supernatural in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, belief in sukuyons are still preserved to some extent in Suriname, Guyana, Dominica, Haiti, and Trinidad, and other Caribbean countries. And the, the skin of a sukuyon is valuable, and it's used for practicing black magic. Ooh. So they're believed to belong to a class of spirits called jumbies, um, which are spirit or demon in Caribbean countries. And there's a bunch of different kinds which reflect the diverse ethnic makeup of the Caribbean by drawing on African, Native American, East Indian, Dutch, English, and even Chinese folklore. Nice. Yeah. So a possible African story that it emerged from was that of the Adza. Um, Unfortunately, could not find a pronunciation for that. So it's kind of a guess. It's a being of Ewe folklore. And those are a group of people in Africa um, that live in modern-day Togo and Ghana. And mm. it takes the form of a firefly, but a human shape when captured. Ooh, okay. So that was what I was thinking of when you mentioned that the striga takes the form of a bug, like a moth or a fly. Because mm-hmm. that's very interesting. And yes. so in the firefly form, it passes through closed doors and sucks blood. And some people believe that it's used to describe the deadly effects of malaria and there's no defense from the Adza. Mm. So, yeah. It was interesting. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, in some research, I found the book Things That Fly in the Night Female Vampires and Literature and Folklore of the Circum Caribbean and African Diaspora by Giselle Liza Anatole. 
So for the next session, I will put a trigger warning for discussions of slavery and a few mentions of violence under slavery. So the author of this book, uh, Giselle Liza Anatole, states that the presence of stories like that of the Sukuyan under various names in various Caribbean countries represent a shared cultural identity through the legacy of African diasporas as a result of the slave trade. So she says, quote, However, the Sukiol stories, unlike a single quote-unquote Caribbean identity or a fixed moment in history and a one-way passage from one continent to another, provide multi-registered, multi-directional, repeatable, if not repeating, ties between geographic nodes, enhancing a sense of connectivity. Because the stories emerge from different geographical spaces, different local contexts, and different historical moments, highlighting, quote, diffusion rather than concentration, diversions rather than convergence, unquote, Individuals familiar with the Sukuyan tales are revealed to share a collective identity that exists alongside other collective identities and can interact with those collective identities in a multitude of ways. So basically, as I mentioned earlier, the Caribbean is home to a lot of different cultures mixing together. So there's not like really, it's hard to say that there's one like unified Caribbean identity, but through stories of the Sukuyan, which is so widespread across the Caribbean, they can, like, find a collective identity and a collective relationship with each other. Mm-hmm. So people... And, uh, I don't know if you said, but Sukuyon, it just comes from French, right? I think so, but I think it actually comes from, like, Creole. Okay. The way it's spelled, it looks like um, Creole. So, like, definitely French influences, but um, I couldn't find, like, what it actually means. So people in the Caribbean have used the metaphor of the vampire to represent the parasitic impacts of European colonists on colonized people and lands. Mm-hmm. So, for example, this is found in the writing of Langston Hughes, who calls the U.S. a vampire in his poem Columbia, which critiques the U.S.'s unwillingness to acknowledge its imperialistic nature. And in the writings of M.A. Césaire, hmm. who refers to European colonization as, quote, these Gothic nations, the steaming blood, and his discourse on colonialism. And then Mimi Scheller takes a further gendered approach in her book, Consuming the Caribbean, From Arawaks to Zombies where she addresses how the vampire of European colonialism and imperialism exploits Caribbean women's bodies. Then, legends such as the Ruguru, the Sucreon, and the Bizango are often seen as representations of slavery. So they're monsters that drain the blood out of the people, often targeting children, and that can be represented of how slavery drained the life force out of people, especially children who were forced into it. Mm, Yeah. And then the werewolf, yeah, the werewolf depiction of the Ruguru can be seen to represent how the institution of slavery turns humans into monsters that do horrific things to other human beings. Mm, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the skin shedding aspect of the Sukuyon is similar to that of another legendary being um, around the Caribbean called the Sanpo, which means without skin. Uh, so in French. Folklore, yeah. Well, also in um, it's a Creolized spelling. Oh, okay. Um, folklore of such frightening creatures can be could be remnants of horrific stories of slavery in which, and this is quite graphic, so, uh, you know, tread caution, maybe if you need, skip ahead a few seconds. Enslaved people have had their skin flayed and then applied with salt, pepper, ashes, and lemon juice. God. So, um, and that's also reminiscent of putting salt in a Sukuyan's mortar, and that would stop her from flying out and sucking people's blood. Horrifying. Yeah. However, um, as time passes, the Sukuyon becomes more of an empowering figure in storytelling. Quote, the Sukuyon is no longer frightening as an objectified, quote, thing, unquote, or beast whose skin has been removed by a separate brutalizing force. 
and neither is she the subjugated whose blood oozes because of the viciousness of a master's whip. Instead, she is horrifying because she can strip off her own skin and penetrates the skin of others. She is also the one who draws blood, not leaks it. She is a powerful actor, not acted upon. So, in this way, the Sukuyon becomes a threat to the colonizer and the oppressor, and not the oppressed. And so I thought that was really cool. And really yes, great. pretty different from the other ones who were definitely just, you know, villains. Yeah, for sure. So, Lizzie, we have one more lady to talk about today. Yes, so the next is the Aswam from Filipino folklore. So... The Philippines has 87 languages, and the term Aswang is primarily used by speakers of Tagalog, Bicol, and Bisayan. So the Aswang is like, it's like an umbrella term for shape-shifting evil spirits in the Philippines. And they have five categories. There's the vampire, the viscera sucker, the were-dog, the witch, Uh and the carrion-eating ghoul. Those are all excellent. They are, (laughs) but today we'll just talk about two of them. The Mm -hmm. Bloodsucking Vampire and the Viscera Sucker. I love it. So the vampires are usually disguised as beautiful young women who often marry unsuspecting youth, then suck just a little bit of their blood each night until eventually they die of anemia. Wow. At which point they find a new husband. That's very fun. Yeah, it's very like subtle over yeah. time that feels like waited out it feels like a very sexist idea of like how marriage you <laughs> women know, is sucking up yeah exactly. yeah but also <laughs> it's fun and i support her so it's okay <laughs> yeah um so the vampire aswang sucks blood by using the tip of her tongue pointed like a proboscis of a mosquito mm. to pierce the jugular vein Ugh. yep <laughs> <laughs> And uh, sometimes she leaves the husband unharmed and just uses his home as an operation space and flies out at night to raid other villages. Nice. And she doesn't attack people in her own home to avoid exposing herself. Very smart. Yeah, very. <laughs> so other Philippine names for the blood-sucking Aswang include in West Bisayan, Amalanhik, which means the stiff one, in Isneg, Danak, and in Tagalog, Mandarugo, which means the bloodsucker. So the Isneg or Isnog language is, by the way, spoken by about 40,000 people in the northern Philippines. And there's an Isneg legend that tells the origin of the Danag or the bloodsucking Aswang. Mm-hmm. So one day, several people were planting crops when one woman cut her finger. Another woman sucked the wound and discovered she liked the taste of blood. Okay. Kind of reminded me of your batarie uh, a bit. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> And so she kept on sucking her blood until she had completely drained the woman's body. Oh my gosh. That's quite a story. (laughs) And then it says, soon blood sucking replaced farming. But I couldn't quite decode what that meant. Wow. Blood sucking replaced (laughs) farming, like, as an activity or, like, I don't know. Uh, That's very interesting. I think it's just such a powerful statement. (laughs) I know. Well... It's it's great, whatever it means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so next is the viscera sucker. So the viscera sucker sucks out the internal organs or feeds on the phlegm of the sick. Hmm. So by day, it looks like an attractive woman with long hair. And uh-huh. at night, she grows wings and plays farms and discards her lower body from the waist down. Oh, the, like just, mm-hmm. just detach. I guess so. 
Nice. And uh, the viscera sucker's tongue is extended, narrow, and tubular like a drinking straw, but not pointed like a vampire, and it can be distended to a great length. Okay. Yeah. This is a great... I just thought it was fun how there was so much tongue description in this account. It's very descriptive, so... I mean, it's it's very um, detailed of exactly, like, you know, the adaptations that they developed yeah. in order to be able to consume the food that they need to survive. Exactly. It's just evolution. <laughs> it's just evolution. So the viscera suckers' favorite victims were pregnant mothers because they liked to suck babies dry, killing them. Ooh. Yeah. So you've noticed probably, like, a couple similarities with the estuaries, probably. Mm-hmm. Like, the long hair, the killing of babies mm-hmm. as well um yeah so they also enjoy people with tuberculosis or asthma so they can suck out their voided phlegm and will hide under sick people's beds and supposedly they have a stooped posture because of their habit of prowling under houses interesting i feel mm. like the phlegm thing is kind of helpful though isn't it is it? I don't know. I mean, I mean, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not like as bad as sucking out blood, but it's yeah. like you still probably don't want it to happen to you. Yeah. I mean, I guess so, I just don't know much about phlegm. I don't either. <laughs> Couldn't tell you. So some viscera suckers are said to live in the jungle by day. Some in lonely huts deep in the woods. But most of them reside in human communities with men they have married. Mm. Similar to the vampire. Yeah. And, uh, the most effective way to kill a viscera sucker is to sharpen the end of a bamboo shoe and thrust it into its back. Wow, so very similar to staking. Yeah, very. With the but like reverse they have around. Yeah. Yeah, in the back instead of the heart, I guess. So the viscera sucking aswang is also referred to as abat among the East Bisayan, aswang narupat among the Bikol, which means flying aswang. Uh, Buruka among the Iloko, which comes from the Spanish bruja, meaning witch, mm. and the Maranango among the Tagalog. Yeah. So a lot of the research that I've come across that explains the Aswang is from Maximo Ramos, who was the pioneering folklorist of the Philippines. Awesome. And uh, he made some observations in his research that the daily lives of Filipinos were influenced by older traditions that originated from the fear of the Aswang. So, for example, being loud when in a group setting, which originated in traditions where it was thought that noise and shouting would keep away ghouls. And also, the aswang is said to fear salt, and nowadays Filipinos eat a lot of salty foods since they have repellents against the aswang. Mm. So salt so again. that's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, salt once again. I think, yeah. it's, it's, I think like, that's been found in, like, every story, except for maybe, I think the Bavanshi didn't have anything about salt, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty interesting. Yeah. I wonder if there's like a reason for that or just. I know that spread. I think like I salt is supposed to be purifying, but I think it's fascinating how like, I mean, like we've talked about a lot of different cultures that like have had limited influence on each other, I think. And mm-hmm. um, the salt is there. It's just there. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So Maximo Ramos also thought that the word aswang came from asu aswang, which meant likeness of a dog. Which would make sense because one version of the aswang is as a were-dog. Mm-hmm. But more recent researchers have suggested it's a portmanteau of the word asin, which means salt, and bawang, which means garlic, which are two ways to ward off the aswang. Interesting. Um, but also, there's another theory 
that Aswang comes from Suwang, which means evil spirit, or possibly from the Sanskrit Asuras, which means demon. Interesting. Which makes sense because um, the Sanskrit has also had impact on Tagalog, so okay, yeah, that would also make sense. Mm-hmm. So can't really know for sure. That's four different etymologies, and I think there might even be more. But so it's pretty unclear what the etymology yeah. actually is. But yeah. so it sounds like it's been around for like this story has been around for like a really long time. Yeah, it definitely has. Like I think the first sort of um, what's the word. But, like, the first accounts yeah. were, well, actually, the first accounts that we know of for sure were from, like, Spanish colonizers, but that was in the 1500s. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing it was long before that as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's really Just cool. Just Spanish explorers, so I'm just kind of reading between the lines. Yep. <laughs> that's the Aswang. Very fun. She's pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah, I love the Aswang. I just think it's such a great... No, she's great. I really like yeah. her. Well them because there's at least five of them but yeah so cool yeah so like in mythology and folklore as mostly folklore i think as we've discussed vampires are quite prevalent and they're still quite prevalent today and have been for like consistently so like in early vampire literature um the first vampires were female so for mm-hmm. example in gottfried august Berger's lenore in 1774 johann wolfgang von goethe's the bride of corinth in 1797 also, Samuel Taylor Coleridge's Christabel in 1816, mm. and Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla in 1872, which mm-hmm. Carmilla also influenced Bram Stoker's Dracula as well, mm-hmm. which, as we know, has quite been the influence on modern pop culture. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think it's kind of hard to say if these literary vampires were inspired by the female vampires of mythology and folklore like we talked about. Because the modern conception of vampires is very, like, far-reaching and vast, so we can't really attribute modern conceptions of vampires to specific things, I feel like. Mm -hmm. But, like, especially since it seems that vampires are such a global phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Like, it's kind of interesting how they just, like, sort of sprung out of different cultures. Like, you wonder if it sort of has Mm -hmm. to do with contact from other cultures, or if it had to do with just, like, it's a common thing to have occurred. Mm-hmm. in some way but yeah. anyway it's also interesting just how broad and deep vampire lore is like it's found in cultures all over the world and even persists to this day like even now people don't necessarily live in fear of vampires like they did clearly in the stories we talked about um but they're still quite common in our global consciousness and in pop culture mm-hmm. like you were kind of talking about this but like we don't necessarily fear them now they're sort of, they're scary, but they're more, I feel like, sort of sexualized nowadays. Like, yeah, there's vampire definitely. romances, there's, like, movies about sexy vampires, <laughs> which is pretty interesting. Yeah. Like, for me, at least, none of, the, none of the lore that I researched really had anything to do with sexual associations. So mm-hmm. it's like, do we associate sexuality with deviance from the norm and a lack of morality? Or do mm-hmm. we just find vampires attractive somehow? I don't know. Yeah. Hard to say. Mm-hmm. But, uh... Pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. And then um, if we talk about um, Carmilla, we can also talk about how vampires have been really prevalent, particularly in LGBT subcultures. Yeah, like especially, I mean, nowadays there's definitely been tons of lesbian vampire movies, as I also came across in my research, like um, from the 30s and beyond, which, I mean, mm-hmm. I want to say that's like got some homophobic flair to it, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, and uh, I also read something that said something like um, uh, in movies, 
like women weren't allowed to be romantic like lesbian wasn't allowed to be depicted like actually mm-hmm. so in stuff like vampire movies that's when they could sort of show love between women even if mm. it was you know not quite a yeah realistic or anything but yeah i thought that was pretty interesting sort that of two is. versions because i was gonna be like okay though well, that's pretty homophobic but yeah mm, kind of two ways to look at it mm-hmm. definitely yeah because yeah, like two of the pieces of literature i talked about earlier carmilla obviously but also samuel taylor coleridge's christabel uh depicted lesbianism and vampires so mm-hmm. it's quite quite got like its roots as well mm-hmm. like the whole lesbian vampire and pop culture thing yeah it's quite established since the 1800s so mm-hmm. yeah deviance so- from the norm once again i think yeah. Yeah. So that was super interesting. Um, there's so many vampires from all over the world and so many different forms that they take from young women to elderly women to fireballs to <laughs> upper torsos of women with wings. Yeah. Um, and it's really great. This is a super fun discussion. And, and on yeah. theme for the season. So Absolutely. That's great. Yeah. Celebrating our vampire ladies out there today. So yeah, thank you for listening. Um, Please feel free to subscribe to us and leave a review. And uh, see you next week. Thank you. Bye. Myth of Ladies podcast is produced, researched, and presented by Elizabeth LaCroix and Zoe Kenninger. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Myth of Ladies and visit us on our website at mythofladies.com. Our cover art is by Helena Cayo. Our music was written and performed by Icarus Tyree. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Thank you.